0: Make a change for yourself, tell others about your change, and hopefully the message will spread.
1: Hey there, Food Junkies listeners. In episode 64, we introduce you to Catherine Kersey from our first food addiction research clinical study group. Clarissa and I represent Team North America and have facilitated three total groups so far. We will be presenting our results concerning this level of food addiction treatment in Bristol, England on Friday, May 20th at the International Food Addiction Conference. We have been pleased with the results thus far and are looking forward to this opportunity to bring more awareness about the need for treatment of this disease. We are also excited to connect with the world's leading experts in food addiction. And if you get the chance, you should join us as well. We would love to meet you. There's just nothing like in person after zooming our brains out for the last two years. If you are interested in attending, be sure to check the show notes or Google PHC Food Addiction Conference. The public health collaboration is the one funding our study, which is still ongoing. If you are looking to be a future participant, we are looking at starting two more study groups in June. Reach out and let us know if you're interested. Check the show notes for One Way to Connect. In this episode, Clarissa and I interviewed Mark Leary and Tracy Burrows of the Targeted Research on Addictive and Compulsive Eating Program, or TRACE. Mark Leary is a PhD student at the University of Newcastle. He is an accredited practicing dietitian who has been working in private practice for the last nine years. He is interested in how addictive eating behaviors can impact the health of individuals and his research focuses on improving these eating behaviors to help improve health outcomes. Professor Tracy Burrows is the team leader of Trace Dietetics at the University of Newcastle, Australia, and a researcher at Hunter Medical Research Institute. She is a skilled clinician and researcher, recognized as a Fellow of Dietitians Australia. She is passionate about nutrition and mental health to enable individuals to achieve a healthier quality of life. She is a highly published author, conference presenter, and recipient of numerous awards for her research. About the program. The TRACE program has been built over years of research in the field of addictive eating. It is based on current scientific evidence, including input from individuals with lived experience with addictive eating. The TRACE program is designed for individuals with symptoms of addictive eating. The aim is to increase an individual's awareness of how food is often used or consumed with mood and equip individuals with strategies to improve their addictive eating behaviors. How the program works? The first step is an initial assessment to find out about each individual's personality, addictive eating, and lifestyle behaviors. This information is used to tailor the program. The program includes five modules, personality, food, skills, confidence, and moving forward. This program includes a workbook to assist individuals in working through each of the modules. What to expect in this episode? How Mark and Tracy become involved in studying addictive and compulsive eating, clearing up some confusion on terminology being used in research. What personal characteristics trace program has found about individuals seeking treatment. The best hopes for outcomes based on the research and how might this help get food addiction recognized by the World Health Organization and the American Psychiatric Association? The importance of thorough screening. Tracy and Mark answer our question about best strategies and confirm what we know. There is no one size fits all when it comes to recovery tools. We find out their findings on fasting versus feeding, the brain, and those with food addiction or addictive eating. We talk about oxytocin and how it relates to addictive eating or addiction. We talk about volume eating. What's next for the TRACE program? And of course, they answer our signature question. Welcome, Mark
0: and Tracy. All right. We are so excited to have Tracy and Mark from the TRACE team. That is the Targeted Research Addictive Compulsive Eating Program that is run in Australia. And we really want to hear more about the program. But first, we want to hear more about you. So could each of you kind of give us a bit of an introduction as to who you are, how you got excited about this, and why this addictive eating research is so important to you? Mark, would you like to start?
2: Yeah, of course. Thank you, Clarissa. G'day, everyone, uh, listeners. My name is Mark Leary. I'm an accredited practicing dietitian here in Australia. I've been working in a variety of settings for the last 10 years since I graduated and probably been the the last few years in which I joined and started working uh, with the Trace uh, research team here at the University of Newcastle. What got me involved in the area of food addiction and, and addictive eating, I guess, for me, the <laughs> particularly over the past few years working as a clinical dietitian in private practice I will quite often see patients who primarily came to me for weight loss advice but I guess I soon sort of recognized that for some of them they had quite a negative relationship with food and how they talked about how they talked about food I guess and and the usual weight loss advice just wasn't really working for them and and I found that their behaviors particularly seem to be impacting on their weight loss success so over the years since i graduated i've always kept quite a close relationship with the university here and and when the opportunity came up to do some research within the addictive eating space and looking at behaviors around you know why we eat the way we do i just jumped at the chance and and i've loved every minute of it since
3: that's very Australian there, Mark. G'day. <laughs> um, so so I'm um, Professor Tracy Burrows and I'm at the um, University of Newcastle. And I guess this is a really interesting question to start with because I guess it really, for me, you know, I'm a dietitian. By background, I'm an accredited practicing dietitian similar to Mark. And I guess the reason I became a dietitian in the first place is really to help people. And we all know that many people have tried to change things in their life, so changing behaviour, and often it's a really difficult thing to do. So when it comes to changing a behaviour in relation to food, it can be really challenging. And so I guess because I'm, I'm so passionate to help people, I really wanted to know, well, how could we make that easier or how could we better understand it to improve someone's relationship with food? Maybe it's a different approach and led down this path of sort of like, looking at different weight management, relationships with food, focusing on eating behaviors per se rather than the food. So it's been kind of a little bit of a journey that's kind of taken a different path looking at either weight management or mental health, whether that be in the shape of disordered eating or depression or anxiety or trauma, it's taken a few different paths along the way. And I guess that's um, yeah, a little bit about me and why I'm interested in researching and better understanding this area that we're going to talk about today.
1: Yes, this is also exciting. I love when when our guests have just a real personal connection to their work. And I think in this kind of work, we it's hard not to. So I just want to dive right in there because we've heard... you know, the term addictive eating, but we come from a world where we often use the term food addiction. So what is the difference between addictive eating and food addiction? And how does addictive eating differ from other commonly understood eating disorders? And does the Yale food addiction scale measure addictive eating or food addiction?
3: So so there's a lot of questions in there. So so let's unpack that a little bit. So so I guess the first thing is, you know, addictive eating, food addiction. It's really acknowledging, I guess, what's kind of out there at the moment that there are a range of different terms that are referring to this relationship with food. And I guess one of the unique, interesting components of our research is that we're really consumer-led and really what we're meaning there is that, you know, people use different words and we're really receptive to that. So in practice... You know they might all describe a similar you know um, relationship to food, whether it's a compulsive drive to food, impulsive binging, there's a whole range of different terms. and it's really about, I guess connecting with the person and using the terms that they may have been using for a long time. So I guess whether it's addictive eating or whether it's food addiction or another particular term, you know that they're, mm. they're all at the moment really talking about similar things and and I guess, the second part of the question was really how does addictive eating differ from other commonly defined disordered eating. But I guess to me in my mind and I guess where our research and our practices is at is it's probably looking at it even broader than that, not just in connection to disordered eating. Because what our research has really shown is that addictive eating or food addiction, whichever one we want to talk about, it's not just disordered eating, it often co-occurs with many other mental health conditions or mental illness. So maybe it's depression, maybe it's anxiety, maybe it's trauma, it's connected to a whole bunch of different mental health conditions. So, so I guess, you know, branching that out a little bit and it's exploring that kind of understanding and I guess that leads into sort of that last part of that question and then I'll let Mark speak but does the Yale Food Addiction Scale measure food addiction or addictive eating? So you know it's really acknowledging that the Yale Food Addiction Scale it's one tool. There's many many tools that can be used to assess eating behaviours you know whether it's addictive eating or emotional eating or stress-related eating. There are a whole range of different tools and The Yale Food Addiction Scale, it measures food addiction and as well as symptoms of food addiction and what we know in the sort of research space is that by far and most the Yale Food Addiction Scale is the most commonly used and so that's often in practice what's used. It's a self-report tool. It talks about it in relation to particular foods rather than singling out perhaps a particular nutrient or a particular type of food. So, So there's different ways I guess of implementing it and thinking about sort of, I guess, food addiction on that spectrum is, you know, that Yale food addiction scale allows that because it can kind of look at different symptoms as well as just, you know, a really categorised kind of yes or no sort of thing. So at the moment, the Yale food addiction scale, yeah, it does measure food addiction, but perhaps it's more being very broad about what that actually means. So Mark, did you want to add anything to that? Like the consumers and the participants that we have, they often use a range of different terms. Would you agree?
2: Yeah. Yeah. And I think you've been quite thorough there, Tracy, in describing the the And But I guess, yeah, look, in practice, I would definitely agree that we do tend to try to use that consumer-led approach when we're You know, like labeling food addiction or or addictive eating with people. And I know know, participants that have come into our program and and over the years that, you know, some of them relate to different terms as well. And, you know, from our point of view, we want to use a term that they feel comfortable with, that they relate with. So, you know, there have been some people that relate more so with like the term overeating, addictive eating, or some people, you know, will actually identify a specific food that they feel that they're addicted to and sort of use that term so like a sugar addiction or like a chocolate addiction so from our point of view we definitely sort of try to let the participants and the consumers run with you know what sort of term do they identify with and what sort of term do they relate more to but i guess you know definitely within the in the research aspect, uh, the two terms, addictive eating and food addiction, can be used quite interchangeably.
3: I'm going to jump back in because like, I guess it's kind of an interesting, you know, it's a really, it's a conversation, right? It's not like a yes, no kind of answer. It's a really interesting area that obviously you can tell we're pretty passionate about. But, you know, the Yale food addiction scale at the moment, it does identify the symptoms as if food addiction perhaps would be a substance use disorder. So, you know, there is overlap with disordered eating. So I guess it's this evolving space that we're, our team's really passionate to better understand, to sort of improve our understanding, to better help um, people. The other interesting thing in the most recent version of the Yale Food Addiction Scale is that it does measure sort of, I guess, the severity of, so not looking at that sort of food addiction, non-food addiction sort of thing. You can, depending on the number of symptoms that are endorsed, you can really get an idea about how severe this may be, so whether it's mild, moderate or severe. So then it gives you an idea about perhaps some of the strategies or perhaps how, how much this is impacting on someone's you know, day-to-day functioning. So I think that's another important kind of aspect. And I guess mm. just, just broader speaking, you know, people do refer in research and things like that as food addiction because of probably the tool that's most commonly used, which is that y But I guess, as I was saying before, some of our research in talking to consumers you know, patients, participants, you know, a range of different people and backgrounds is that when we talk about food addiction, you have to sort of think about the the next step of that, because if it's termed food addiction, then what does that actually mean? It means that someone who may experience these behaviours is a food addict. And that's actually, you know, for a lot of people can be quite stigmatising, be associated with lots of negative emotions that we're really trying to help, you know, individuals you know start to cope or deal or you know it's different for everyone so I think it's there's a lot about this terminology that that sort of still needs to be unpacked but maybe at the end of the day you know it's not about one term it's about using the terms that people are using because it's the help that we're passionate about trying to deliver.
0: Yeah, it was interesting because even when we were trying to determine, like, to go to the ICD to submit, you know, food addiction, we had the debate, does it need to be, you know, because now they use substance use disorder, does this need to be food use disorder? And what does that look like? So you're very right in that, you know, definitely the ASAM is moved towards away from addiction being that stigmatizing terminology. And, you know, maybe we need to come alongside them and partner with that as well. Can can you share with us from the individuals that have been in the Trace program? What are some of the characteristics or maybe personality that you have seen individuals seeking treatment for addicting eating? Is there some common ones?
3: Yeah, so that's a really interesting question, and and I guess um you know what we do know, and I probably would put it out there first before I sort of describe what we what some of that research is, but you know what we know about addictive eating is that it's not a one size fits all you know it's experienced by a range of different people in a range of different backgrounds so you know the research that we have sort of looked at about what what are some of those characteristics it's sort of probably not generalizable because it is an interesting you know that people are coming forward to seek treatment so perhaps it's not you know can't be generalizable to to perhaps maybe the broader kind of community. But what we do know is that the people that are coming forward, I guess, as you said, in Australia, you know, is is really um, that they tend to be female. They tend to be from a higher weight status. They tend to have probably some other co-occurring mental health conditions, so perhaps maybe depression or anxiety. And the other interesting thing is that they've probably tried some kind of weight management or other types of, you know, diet modification, a range of different things before and they've also mm. probably tried to seek help from a health professional but you know like i said it's not the be-all end-all because we do know you know food addiction occurs in healthy weight people it occurs in mm. males it occurs in all of these people but it's interesting, I think, that they're the group of people that are coming forward. So I guess our research, you know, is really thinking about well, why aren't the other kind of groups that we know that it occurs yeah. coming forward as well. So I think that's, you know, just something interesting for, um you know, listeners to have a think about too. So, yeah, Mark, were you going to add something there?
2: I was just going to say and highlight that in, in a lot of the research that males are, are definitely, I guess underrepresented in the research, and I guess that that could come down to a couple of things. Like for males, the idea of, of food addiction or addictive eating, you know just may not even be on their radar at that particular point in order to want to you know go go and seek help help for the and you know we know that, however, of the males that do participate in a lot of these research studies that addictive eating or food addiction can be just as problematic for them as it is for females so we definitely you know love to encourage males to put their hand up and volunteer and and participate in these sorts of um in these sorts of studies and programs like our trace program because we know that it's definitely affects males, but it's just that they're underrepresented in the research at the moment.
3: Yeah. And I think, Mark, it's interesting that point that you sort of raised because what we sort of, you know, experienced is that, you know, perhaps there's a lot of symptoms of food addiction or addictive eating behaviours, but sometimes for some individuals, it's that recognition that this is actually something that's influencing them or impacting them. And that kind of like impact you know, is really that kind of one of the distinguishing features. You know, if, if it's a mental health kind of condition. So I guess that's one of the things that we do know and we recognize, and I guess some of the limitations as well as where we're currently at. So,
1: so would you to be willing to share more about the trace program? You know, this intervention or treatment modality. You know, what were the best hopes with this program? You know, what have you found so far? And. How might it help us move along in this process of having the World Health Organization and later, hopefully, the American Psychiatric Association, you know, recognize this as a thing? So, I mean, what can you tell us about the program and your findings and anything you're willing to share about Trace?
3: So, Mark, you might just share a little bit to start with it because there was there's quite a little bit of background there before jumping into the trace because this has been you know happening for a while. So, Mark, do you want to lead off with yeah. a little bit of the background there?
2: Yeah, yeah, of course. So I guess the, firstly, I'll just highlight that the part part the first part of my PhD was to do a systematic review of the existing food addiction treatment modalities that are out there, that are currently out there, and looking at the effectiveness of those. This is on the back of that previous reviews in the past that had focused on or looked on uh, online self-help groups and psychosocial treatments, but we know that the treatments for food addiction you know, can be highly varied. So potentially there may be a whole range of treatments that are beneficial for those people with addictive eating that actually didn't make it into those previous reviews. So my first step was to do this whole sort of broad systematic review to try and find you know, what are the current Treatments that are available for people with food addiction and how effective are they? So, two things, I guess. Firstly, was that we found that there actually isn't a lot of studies that actually looked or measured how effective that their intervention was on food addiction. In total, there were nine, and of those nine, we found that there were five that reported a significant improvement in food addiction outcomes, and two of those were bariatric surgery, two were studies that used uh, certain medications and one was a lifestyle modification. So once, you know, straight away, you start looking at that and you're thinking that four out of those five studies that reported that significant improvement, you know, the bariatric surgery and medications, you already got some possible side effects and risks that are associated with those, those types of treatments. So, you know, we, we started delving into this idea of, you know, looking at lifestyle modification approach, a bit less risk, and, and we had done a pilot study Of the, the, what's known now as the Trace program. A couple of years ago, we had some. Quite positive feedback and positive results from that pilot study, and so we now have taken on to a larger study into what's called a feasibility study. And I might uh, turn it over to Tracy to have a bit of a, a chat around what uh, what's involved with the, the current study, known as TRACE.
3: Yep, sounds sounds good, Mark. So so yeah, you're right. Like there, there's a whole range of different ones that are being trialed. You know, like we know, as Mark said, there's lots of self help groups out there, but when it comes to from a research angle. They haven't really been evaluated or if the the findings aren't really out there. So we were sort of looking in the published research of what health professionals or what other treatments have kind of been done. And like Mark said, they're really varied, but they're often quite limited because they were done in like a very unique population group. They were really small sample size. There wasn't really a lot kind of in there. And a couple of years ago, actually, it's probably many years ago now, we started looking at it and we started with a program that was looking as a different perspective for changing health behaviour. So instead of going down the weight management kind of route, we looked to the addiction field. So I guess as a dietitian, it's kind of like, you know, what are you doing, (laughs) you know? So we were looking for different alternatives because if we don't try those alternatives... We don't know if they'll work or not. So, this was something kind of new in this dietetic space, which was actually quite challenging for us in the research sort of world to take this whole new different approach. So, so we started with a program and it came from that substance use field about applying that substance use kind of criteria and some of the treatment successful treatments in that space and I guess paralleling it to changing behaviours when it comes to food. So, We worked out from doing that small pilot that Mark said that people were interested in in coming forward. They liked the idea of it. We evaluated that because we're researchers. They told us they wanted more sessions. They liked it. So what we've eventually kind of got to, you know, is that we also went through the process of talking to people you know, because that's a really important component, right? So we can't just have health professionals design this great program, but then it's not effective, right? So we live in the real world. So we talk to a whole range of different consumers from a range of different backgrounds We've lived experience, multiple different conditions, males, females, but importantly, we also talk to health professionals, not just dietitians. We talk to neuroscientists, people in the addiction space, eating disorders, because I'm not sure, you know, as the listeners are kind of listening in what it's like in, in their particular area, but Sometimes if someone goes to try and seek treatment, you know, they might go to a GP and they might get down one treatment path. But perhaps if they've got sort of something else happening, whether it's depression or anxiety or trauma, oh, they might get, go down another treatment option. So for us, we wanted to unite this, right? We wanted to be able to talk to people so that if we did have a program that, you know, could change some kind of behaviour – that perhaps everybody could be talking a similar language, which I guess is sort of the importance and probably why I spoke so much about one of your previous questions about terminology, right? Because it's it's really about using the words that people are going to relate to, but not only a health professional in a dietetic setting, in a whole range of different settings. So we co-designed this process or this program So uniting lots of different fronts. So what we've got is the resultant program is the TRACE, which is what you guys are interested in knowing a little bit more about. So so what we're currently using is it's a five-session program and we're specifically delivering that online because we know that perhaps for some people going to seek help can be a really challenging thing. So we wanted people to feel that they could participate from somewhere where they feel comfortable, whether that's their own home, whether it's their bedroom, wherever, but it also means that, you know, Australia is a pretty big place. <laughs> so, so, it means that people can access, you know, health professional advice, perhaps in an area where they may not even have, you know, a GP one day a week. You know, Australia is a really big place. So, this was about increasing access to services as well as access to behaviour change. So, the program's very holistic. It's not a one size fits all approach because we recognise and understand, you know, from all our former research that everybody comes with a different perspective or a different situation. So we not only focus on food, we focus on a whole range of other lifestyle factors that all kind of cluster together, you know, whether it's physical activity that we know is really beneficial for mental health, but it also considers sleep and it considers a whole range of different kind of holistic lifestyle components really as kind of like that holistic kind of view. And that's, those five sessions are over around a three-month time period so they're sort of closer together at the start and then they sort of spread out as someone hopefully is gaining a little bit more confidence um, in their abilities. As I said, it's kind of personalised and it's tailored to each individual based on their situation. And we use a lot of, uh, I guess, motivational interviewing to help build that confidence and build, what do you call it, like people to take ownership and lead that sort of change that we're sort of looking for. But I guess, you know, this is the first kind of, you know, sort of stepping the way forward we recognize that perhaps in comparison to say some other programs five sessions isn't a lot but this is a really starting point that hopefully might start the conversation or the process of awareness or that treatment process for some individuals so you know I guess that's where it's currently at and as you sort of mentioned we're really interested in seeing what this program can do and then hopefully that'll lead to sort of the next steps.
0: Yeah, I found it fascinating that when you guys were talking about some of the measures that you use to kind of determine you know, individuals at the start and then maybe at the end of the study, you were looking at substance use risk profile scale, the coping and stressful situation scale, the post-traumatic stress disorder checklist, and the alcohol, smoking, and substance involvement screening test. Can you explain to our listeners why you felt that those were important to the study and into understanding addictive eating personalities?
3: Okay, so that's a big question. So I guess, you know, I'm an academic, I'm a researcher, I want to understand. So I guess, you know, our former research would tell us that As we were sort of saying before, it's not a one-size-fits-all. So, how can we better streamline a process to make it more personalised? So, some of those questionnaires that you were sort of mentioning help us sort of you describe fast track, you know, so we can sort of design so that we're not wasting time, you know, thinking about, so, five sessions isn't a lot of time in the whole scheme of things. So, instead of, you know, providing some strategies that we know may not be useful for particular personalities, we use some of those um, questionnaires to, I guess, fast track some of those particular guidance that we might provide or suggest. But what we also know is that, you know, like I said, everybody's situation is very different. So it helps us better understand some of those things when someone's coming into the program. And I guess it opens up that whole big question, right? You know, people eat for a whole range of different reasons, so whether it's emotions, whether it's stress, whether it's trauma, whether it's eating for a low mood, people eat for a whole range of reasons, and we use some of those questionnaires to help us understand that when someone's coming
1: in.
2: Yeah, and I think you're exactly right, Tracy. It just helps us from you know delivering to help deliver the program, just in that that more individualized manner for the participants, so they can get the most out of those limited five sessions.
3: But I guess the other thing is that, you know, like in being a practitioner for a long time, you know, and then looking to other treatment modalities in a whole range of other different fields, it's, you learn a lot. So what we've done is we've taken learnings from, you know, different areas and then trying to parallel this to behaviour change with food. So, you know, there are different personality profiles that perhaps put someone maybe at risk or perhaps if we know someone's depression prone for example they might be more receptive to different types of strategies so rather than have someone you know go away with a strategy that probably if we knew their personality in the first place we probably wouldn't have recommended that so you know it helps us identify and you know get individuals to try different strategies that we know are probably more likely to be successful than not so you know Mm -hmm. for example if you've got someone who's you know trying to think of a really good example but you know someone who's perhaps really into sensation seeking and really interested in those types of things will Perhaps going away to have a bath may not be a really good strategy for them. So, you know, for example, like it just helps us think of it, strategies that may be effective for that individual.
0: Yeah, I really have to say that I took a lot away from reading that paper and I was like, this could actually really be beneficial for my own practice and for having, you know, some of these screens in developing a treatment plan, individual treatment plan for clients. It really does highlight a lot of things that I didn't even really think about incorporating. So I just really want to thank you both for that. Absolutely. And I think too, it also speaks really to what you guys have been saying this whole time is that it's very
1: individualized. I mean, not only is everybody's experience individual, as far as how they experience food addiction, addictive eating, compulsive eating, whatever they're calling it, their recovery process is also very individualized. And it sounds like that's what, by collecting this information, each person's interventions are actually quite different. Is that yeah Yeah, yeah, that's right and
3: and and like we were saying before like it's for some individuals you know like whether you call it everyone calls it something different a recovery process a journey like whatever people want to whatever they want to kind of call it but sometimes it may not even be that it might just be awareness so Mm. perhaps it's just thinking about and when when you sort of provide some feedback, it might be a realisation that perhaps someone hasn't connected before. And so I guess even from a food perspective or whether it's a eating behaviour or low mood, you know, even if our program can create some awareness, you know, About something else that might be happening, people making that connection for the first time—that's great. You know, then then there's something else that they can they can work towards. So, so I guess it's sort of like you know different. It could be treatment, but it also was really awareness raising. And you know, even from a dietary perspective, you know, sometimes when you get a feedback report, you know, on what it is, you know, sometimes you're surprised and sometimes you're not surprised. I'm sure like we've all had that. You know, you do you do a question, you're like, oh, I didn't realize I was like that, but turns out and then you make the connection for yourself. So so sometimes it's about awareness raising too. I think that's really important for, for many individuals.
2: Yeah, I think that's a really good point that you bring up as well, Tracy, because whilst you know we'd love to be able to help everyone that comes into the into the program over five sessions, sometimes people just may not be aware of their and you know, necessarily their eating behaviors or why they eat the way that they do in you know in certain situations. So even even if all we can do is Help to increase that awareness around that particular person's eating behaviors or, you know, they eat a certain way because they were feeling like this or you know, this happened to them, which triggered them to then use food to cope in that situation that they, you know, had never joined those dots before in the past. I think that's a really big thing that's going to help them on their, you know, their long-term journey then of seeking management and seeking help around their um, addictive eating behaviours.
1: Absolutely, and I think I think that you know that there's some research on that, right? Like that self-determination is really the way. So speaking of all of that, then are you guys willing to share, or maybe, you know, if something comes to mind, a good example comes to mind, some of these motivational techniques, which have been the most successful with the consumers or the clients, the participants in the study, you know, have there been, I mean, I use motivational interviewing myself. So this is a little bit of a personal question. (laughs) to be able to take back to my clients as well. Have you found any specific techniques to be more beneficial than others?
3: Yeah. So it's a good question, but I'd say our learnings is that perhaps people need a variety of different strategies because, you know, when it comes to life, you know, you can have one strategy in your mind, but it's almost having that toolkit, right? Of a few different strategies. Cause You might find that one strategy can work in one particular scenario, you know, like we've just come out of kind of like the Christmas, you know, closed down kind of period and stuff like that, or being in lockdown from, you know, the COVID pandemic and things like that. So, people may have strategies that work, but to us, it's really about having a toolkit of strategies that perhaps might work. So, if one doesn't work in one particular scenario, they've got another one that they can try. So, I'd say probably multiple strategies is is, is a good kind of thing for, for individuals to think about and then they feel more confident, you know, like whether it's in a family situation or it's a work Christmas party or it's, you know, something different for that individual. So I guess it's having that toolkit of strategies. But Mark, you've probably got some other things that you can add add to that. If you,
2: yeah, 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 I was was just going to say, so exactly right, Molly. Like, I guess fundamentally, a lot of the program is based around that idea of motivational interviewing. And and if the listeners aren't too familiar with MI, you know, you do a little quick Google search of motivational interviewing, you know, it'll tell you a little bit about what that sort of technique is. But you know, using things like reflective listening and client engagement, you know, a, a rate a Awareness raising is all quite fundamental to the program, and uh, you know, I definitely agree with Tracy when it comes to you know what coping strategies or which you know, coping strategy have we found to be the most effective or the most successful for participants. It's so because it's so individualized, you know, one coping strategy that maybe we think is, is really effective for one type of person or one type of personality style can be totally different for for someone else. So I wouldn't necessarily say that there's this, you know, this clinical of coping strategy that we can just throw a blanket over everyone that has food addiction or addictive eating and say, do this and, and you're going to be fine. I think a lot of it also comes down to just that communication between You know us and the participant, and opening that communication line to try and establish. You know what? You know what do we feel is going to be a really good coping strategy for you to use in X situation, or you know how you're feeling in this particular point in time? Because, like Tracy said, you could have a multiple, and you know it'd be great if we can have a multiple types of coping strategies to call upon. And to utilise during different stages of how we're feeling, or in different environments, to to help us get through that particular particular feeling. So yeah, I mean, unfortunately, so, so really... we haven't
3: got the magic there. If that's what you were no, looking for, Molly. Yeah, you know, yeah. like you, you, it's not a it's not a one size fits all. It's not like you know, we can just wave that wand and, and fix it, even though, you know, as practitioners, that's what we feel like we want to do. <laughs> it's, it's, you know, and, and sometimes it's not like we've got a list either, you know, that we can kind of just work our way through and then find the magic wand. Sometimes this is about, you know, people bring their own experience, right, to all of this, and they have tried things that have been successful in the past. So, maybe it's perhaps helping them line up all those things that were successful. So, it's, you know, a lot of the people that we, you know, in our current race, it's designed for adults, right? So, you know, they've got lived experience and perhaps it might be successful strategy that they've used in some other aspect of their life. And then, you know, the, the dots connect. So, so so we can't give you the magic kind of there, but it's recognizing, you know, like, it's not like people come and there's some magic and, you know, it's, it's something that, that needs to be worked on over the longer term too, so... Yes, yeah, sorry, yeah. sorry and now you're,
0: <laughs> you're speaking about like solution focused, which is also you know a therapy that we do in addictions that can be very beneficial. Is right finding the individual strength and the best coping skill is the one the client's actually going to use at the end of the day. Yeah, exactly, right? that's exactly, the best, exactly. That's so we're, the best we're all on <laughs> We have found the same thing. Definitely. Can you speak a little bit about the research around the amygdala and the fasted versus fed state, uh, results and what that means for individuals with food addiction? What implications does this have for all the clients who want to do the fasting, the intermittent fasting that yeah. that is so trendy right now? Yeah. So I guess what you sort of, what we're sort of touching on there is that, you know, like
3: I'm kind of really interested, you know, in this whole, we've talked about the Yale Food Addiction Scale. You, there's a whole range of different tools, but at the end of the day, these are self-report tools, people describing their behaviour. So, you know, this question is really about some of the research that we did because I'm really interested in some more objective markers. You know, when we look at other areas, it's like what could we tell, you know, that isn't relying on someone saying, you know, I ate this or I did this or those types of things. So some of our research has used, you know, MRI scans to look at differences in the brain. And I guess this is really interesting for food addiction because it provides sort of like that objective real scientific kind of marker, but, So we did do some preliminary work, you know, like in looking at different brain structures and and we did do it sort of like in a fasted state. So meaning people hadn't come in, they, they were particularly hungry. And then when they came back in and they were in a fed kind of setting, but I guess there's a limitation here is that this was really pilot kind of, you know, cutting edge type of research. So can't really generalize, you know, like too much. And What's interesting here is that even though we had the two conditions, fast and burst fed, they weren't really over a long period. There isn't actually any research in food addiction where they've done a particular treatment you know, like or try a different approach. So perhaps fasting, for example, over a long, longer period, you know, like a week or two or whatever, and then evaluated if there were any changes in the brain. So this this kind of pilot kind of thing that we did with the MRI, it's hard to do because they are actually really expensive, right? You know, like to do it in individuals. So so it was sort of, I think it was a sample, like less than 20. So I guess it really opens up that option of, you know, sort of thinking about. What we started to talk about at the start, there's not a one-size-fits-all approach. Some people, fasting might work. Some people, it may not work. Some people, a behaviour change. You know, there's a whole range of different options, but I guess, you know, in that particular research, it was sort of like fasted before breakfast when you're really hungry. Is there any differences in the brain? And then when they'd had something to eat rather than perhaps what you're sort of talking about, we've got like a regime or a dietary pattern fasting. And I don't think we could say anything really conclusive from it, you know, but I think that's, you know, if the research funding was there, that's really something that could be done, you know, like are there changes that happen over a particular eating pattern that happen to people's brain? But this was really sort of looking at that, you know, like at when someone's just lying there sitting still, is there something different about these individuals who have these addictive eating behaviours versus people who are not? So sort of like what we'd call controls in a research study. Um, so that that's probably more what it's about. And I think that's kind of like definitely the avenue of, of where some of the research needs to go because those objective markers, they're a little bit more robust, as we would say, you know, from a scientific perspective. And, you know, we have done some other stuff looking at blood profiles as well, that perhaps we can talk about a little bit later.
2: Yeah, so this area of research, you know, working working on these objective measures, is, is a really sort of fascinating and exciting time around the populations for food addiction and addictive eating. I can't really comment too much more. Tracy's the guru when it comes to when it comes to these sort of more objective measure studies. But uh, just for me, I guess personally, as a dietitian, because I always try to bring it back to you know, the cold face, I guess, you know, being a dietitian, possibly seeing this population group, you know, coming to me, having a one on one sort of sit down in a clinical setting. How can I best help this person? And these, all these objective measure studies that are you know, starting to get a bit of a uh, bit of traction are just really, really fascinating because then we start talking about, well, how can we turn some of the results that we are finding objectively into practical? advice and into practical solutions for the people that you know come to see you or want to make an appointment and and sit down and talk to you how can i manage my addictive eating we've got all this objective measure data how do we then take that next step and make it practical for them so i think that's another area that's going to be exciting to, to see
3: because I guess the other thing is, you know, like it's, it's about the long term, right? This, that's what we're in for. We're in for the long term. So when we talk about these behavior changes or perhaps a particular way of eating, you know, whether it's fasting, you know, I guess, you know, we have experienced so many times people can follow things for a period of time, but this is about what can work in the longer term. And that's, you know, where we come in from this kind of perspective, you know, it's not sort of like that really aggressive type approach. It's about this long-term we're in it for the long-term. So, you know, it's kind of that thinking as well. So I just wanted to throw that in there, but I think we cut you off Molly, if you want to say no, something.
1: No, I was just going to ask, okay, but what about anecdotally? But I think you guys definitely answered that. Right. And we interviewed Dr. Timothy Burton a few weeks ago, and he was kind of explaining that what we see anecdotally in clinical practice doesn't often show up in the the research, right. For years. And so I was just, yeah, that was going to be my think, answer to that beautifully. Yeah.
2: I think, I think there, there's always that sort of cases in there when it comes to research there can always be that bit of disconnect, right. Between, you know, what happens in the clinical setting in, in a laboratory, how does that actually relate? And then how can you transfer that over into the real world settings? And I guess that's where, you know, in, in not just food addiction research, but in any sort of research, right, that's done in a lab, how does it actually carry over and translate into the real world? And, and I think that's something that research in science really needs to, to work on just in general to get better at.
1: I agree. I agree. So switching gears a little bit from the amygdala, can we talk about oxytocin just for a bit? And again, this is like a, a selfish question on <laughs> my part. So for listeners, you know, just a reminder, right? Like we've often thought of oxytocin as like the love or the bonding hormone, right? The chemical, and we think of mothers and babies, right? But research has actually has begun to show over the years that it does play a role in the regulation of feeding, how much we eat how much we expend energy wise, as well as controlling appetite and our satiety. Can you guys tell us more about, about oxytocin? What have you found as it relates to this compulsive overeating, addictive eating study? Yeah, we're all ears.
3: Yeah, sure. Well, I'm happy to start that conversation. So I guess it's kind of, you know, just following on from that question that we're talking about, sort of like the amygdala and the brain scans, our research in looking at oxytocin sort of fits in that in that kind of genre as well, you know, talking about objective markers. So, you know, when you look at oxytocin, we also looked at it in conjunction with probably more well-studied hormones like leptin, ghrelin, things that people know are associated with perhaps commencing feeding or, you know, not finishing feeding. But I think um, so oxytocin is really interesting and this was, you know, pretty again, you know, pushing the boundaries again in this addictive eating space because, you know, like you said, oxytocin is known for like this bonding hormone. But if we relate that to feeding, it's it's a feel-good hormone at the end of the day. And when people eat food, maybe it's particular types of foods, they feel really good, you know. And our bodies are wired to know that if something feels good or something, you know, gives a rewarding sensation, our bodies are wired to do that again, And when we think about this in the context of food addiction, you know, everybody, whether they have addictive eating or food addiction or not, they can have a rewarding experience with food. It's different for everybody what that food may be, but there's also a whole range of things that need to be factored in there, right? Like, so if it's a feel-good hormone, when people eat in company, you know, that can create a feeling of goodness, you know? So when we think about this in this really complex cluster of food addiction, to have some people eat because they're lonely, you know. So oxytocin is kind of interesting to look at in a number of different lenses for food addiction. It's a feel-good hormone. People eat food for a number of different reasons, or oh, oxytocin could be interesting to look at when people eat with other people for a social occasion. For some people, that's a rewarding experience. But on the flip side of that, that can be a very anxiety-provoking experience for some people as well. So oxytocin is very interesting to me, you know, in this kind of space of food addiction. And then to add another layer to that, you know, in, in a substance use field, there's some really interesting research around oxytocin, you know, used as a treatment. So perhaps, you know, like we all have sort of like internal oxytocin, you know, and in some particular areas of substance use, perhaps like nasal sprays, you know, they've been used to help curb, you know, cravings and things like that. So, you know, I'm (laughs) probably thinking, Tracy pushes the boundaries a little bit, you know, like, but really interested in navigating this path because if these are options and they can help people, that's my passion, right? I'm a dietitian. I want to help people. So, you know, it's not like this one size fits all. It could be that we've got the trace program for some individuals. Some individuals might be receptive to other things, but you know, at the end of the day, all of this is increasing our understanding of food addiction. So, you know, it, it's contributing to this knowledge and if we can do that in a really robust way, you know, that's what where the field's kind of needed, you know, in, in our mind. So oxytocin, you know, we tried to, I shouldn't say we tried, we did assess, you know, and we looked at how people respond to different foods. So that particular um, research study that you're talking about is we assessed oxytocin at, you know, a baseline when people first came in to see us. And we wanted to know do different foods stimulate more oxytocin in some individuals? So we actually showed them, you know, we constructed an image paradigm, you know, like of different types of foods to see if, you know, even visually seeing something could actually provoke a response. And, you know, in in this kind of area, you know, we've also got to like look at oxytocin, like how long it lasts in the body. Can you get a response? But we know, and listeners would, you know, probably connect with this as well, that it can be different things that provoke, you know, perhaps a overeating episode. So, you know, it's again, thinking outside the box, but you know, there's a whole bunch of things like just driving past something could be a cue for someone to an overeating occasion. So visually seeing something can, may provoke something. So we wanted to look at this at that really objective marker. So that's where our, what do you call it, interest in in Mm. oxytocin and those other hormones really is stemming from. And again, it was similar to that MRI the amygdala research in the brain that we were talking about before it's kind of like in the research world you've got to do something to sort of show you that there might be something there before then we can do it at this larger sort of scale and you know that that's kind of where our research is at we've done all these lots of little bits and shown some interesting things as Mark said whether it's the program or whether it's these objective markers and we're really interested now in sort of taking this to the next level on I guess what you can kind of see here is like it's a kind of program of work, you know, that we're really thinking of in this area, whether it's the treatment, whether it's the terminology, working with consumers, these objective Mm -hmm. markers. So I guess we're, we're trying to really understand that and, you know, people are really receptive to it and that's driving us and fueling our passion, I guess, is, you know, that people are interested in it. And I guess obviously with that as well comes a little bit of a challenge, you know, because it challenges a lot of people's viewpoints too. So I guess this is, you know, all the things that, you know, in any area of research, but that oxytocin stuff, it's kind of interesting, right? To apply it in this eating domain, which is probably where the question came from. Molly.
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we definitely, because our, the individuals we tend to work with are, you know, trying to get off of, Perhaps sugar, flour, which would be a dopamine response, but these foods might also elicit an oxytocin response for them. And we, of course, talk to our, the individuals we work with about cues and triggers and like how to avoid those because it will help in their recovery. Now, we have had individuals who, you know, eliminate the sugar, they eliminate the flour, and then they still find themselves doing that addictive overeating. And we have heard about, you know, the stretch of the stomach and does that elicit, you know, a serotonin oxytocin response? And could this be part of this addictive eating experience or compulsion that individuals have? But I did love how you mentioned, you know, for some people, they may just be eating because they are lonely and that that's how they're seeking it. And so that's why they're having that overeating experience. So yeah, I just wondered what your thoughts were on that.
3: Yeah, so I think there's, you can probably tell I've always got something to say. I know, um, <laughs> it's so exciting. It's so exciting. <laughs> <laughs> um, so, so I guess there's, there's a multiple sort of, I guess, comments or thoughts, you know, in relation to what you sort of described because I guess, you know, our experience in talking to people with these addictive eating behaviours and I guess their responses, they're, they're all different as well, which is makes it challenging to sort of, mm. you know, come up with this, this um, sort of, you know, answer that a lot of people are looking for because, as you said, perhaps some people may eliminate things and that may work for some people, but what we also know is that doesn't work for some people. You know, as we said before, it's about this long-term kind of process and perhaps when some people restrict something, it changes to something else. So I guess that's kind of interesting to sort of think about because, you know, we hear that as well, you know, like we hear lots of things like that. So I guess whether it's kind of connected to that oxytocin and and, and all that kind of stuff, that's interesting as well. And I've got so many thoughts in my head I'm trying to like <laughs> did you
2: want me to, do you want me to do my, them into
3: one. Yeah, go for it, I'll, I'll, just and... say
2: my, I'll just say my little thought <laughs> thought on this. Like as Tracy said, and, and you know, people that we've spoken to, consumers that we've spoken to over the years, you know, there definitely have been have been some that have found, you know, eliminating cutting out again, you know, particularly things like sugar or your highly processed foods have been really, really effective for them in, in helping them manage their eating addiction. And then, you know, on the flip side of that coin, there are also some people that have tried that and and it hasn't really worked for for them. And I guess, you know, the way that I would think about something like this would be if someone was able to successfully eliminate things like sugar or highly processed foods, but then they're still going down that road of, you know, addictive eating and just this, vol- this whole large volume of food, then I would actually start thinking, well, you know, uh, is it more of, if we'd use the terminology, is it more of, you know, addictive eating that this person, so they're sort of addicted to that idea of, you know, the, the behaviour of eating versus necessarily the food. And I guess, you know, for the listeners, it can come down to the terminology that you use, but I guess I would be thinking, okay, well, is it this behaviour that, that this particular person is actually addicted to and then you know what what can we do then as a strategy to to address that it's the behavior because you're increasing your volume of the food even though you've cut out the sugar in the highly processed food so yeah it's a very it's a very interesting thing that that pops its head up quite often actually and from our point of view yeah I
1: was just gonna
3: say like it's that volume eating isn't always necessarily the consequence of something because what we know is that food addiction or addictive eating behaviors can look very different from the get-go some people it's a particular food it's a particular type of food from the beginning but for other people it's about the volume so the volume eating doesn't always come secondary so i guess you know this is really interesting that you know perhaps someone has something to start with and then it switches but let's not get caught that that's the volume eating because for some people it doesn't matter what that food is it's that mm-hmm. reward or that feeling of fullness that they're looking for not particularly perhaps the you know the sugar hit or the flour hit or whatever that they think is you know the particular thing that that's driving it but but equally to this point like you know, I guess going back to some of the things that we sort of talked about before is that, you know, food addiction can look different and, you know, different situations. So perhaps someone's had a rewarding experience in the past with perhaps let's go with an illicit substance or some other type of rewarding experience and that's been taken away or they've tried to modify that and then food comes in and then that replaces this behaviour. So there is an interesting kind of like a whole avenue of different kind of areas that need to be explored Because perhaps, you know, food then provides that reward, you know, where maybe replacing some other rewarding experience that was there in the past. So how this addictive eating evolves over time is really interesting. And, you know, that's some, we haven't sort of talked about it too much, but this is really interesting in the space of sort of looking at that trajectory of addictive eating. And what research, you know, at the moment would tell us is that when we see adults, you know, with addictive eating or food addiction, it's most often they're endorsing a lot of symptoms. But, you know, this doesn't happen overnight. So when you start looking at this a little bit in the past or a little bit more in the backward way, you know, where did it start and what did it happen? And it's about sort of maybe connecting some of those dots because interesting work in that sort of adolescent space, you know, would tell us that the food addiction using that yay, yay, <laughs> that as tool, can't get my words out, sorry, you know, it's more likely in that mild, moderate kind of um, area. And then when we have it in the adult kind of area, and again, generally speaking here, yeah, not making any generalizations, but that's what the research would tell us. We've got mild to moderate. And then as we see it over time, it's transitioning to more in that severe kind of category. So I guess this is sort of interesting and what that looks like. And as Mark said, perhaps it is a food, you know, this is another number one question, you know, is that, is it a particular food that's driving this, right? Like some researchers. Well, absolutely on some people will tell you it's one particular food but for other people it's not as generic as that you know for other people you know in australia you know people get home on friday after work they like to watch the footy on tv and they can't sit down on that lounge watch the footy or whatever without a drink and some chips or whatever and it's this automatic reaction where you get home from work so it's more about the behavior and this is sort of another question you know that's still out there is it like food addiction Or is it eating addiction? You know, we sort of talked about food addiction or addictive eating, but hang on a second, I've got to go again. You know, is it this food addiction or is it this eating addiction? So, you know, you can get caught up on this language that we sort of talked about before, but really going back to the end, you know, like what we were sort of saying at the start, people are using a whole range of different terms, but, you know, there is this thing you know, whatever we'd like to call it or whatever people refer to it. And we need to think of other options to help them because we know that those mainstream approaches aren't quite cutting the edge, you know, because they're telling us they've sought help before. So our trace program is really kind of like taking that personalized sort of approach. One size doesn't fit all. And, you know, how can we kind of help in a different lens or a different angle? So that sounds like us, doesn't it, Mark? (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, you know, like we're really interested, you know, like as we said sort of before, like this trace program, we really do want to hear from people. And at the moment it's sort of like it is limited to those people in Australia just because that's kind of where we're at. So if people are listening and they're they're in Australia and they feel like they'd like to have a little try, they can get in contact with us. You know, the future of our research, you know, we'd like to expand further, you know what I mean? Because there's multiple angles that we've sort of talked about they're all important so it'd be hard for me to say I want to do that one or we want to do that one but you know um, <laughs> you can hear probably even just listening to us that we're pretty passionate about understanding Only through better understanding are we going to get to better treatments so that everybody can get the help and you know that they really need to help them on that long-term kind of um you know improving their relationship with food so
1: yeah Yeah. I mean, I think it's comforting for me as a clinician and I'm going to go ahead and speak for Clarissa because I'm sure she feels the same. It's very comforting to know we are in the trenches working with clients and what we're doing actually probably looks a lot like what you guys are doing from the research angle, right? We show up, we meet clients where they are. I don't care what term they use. It's a problematic behavior and or experience that they're having that they don't want to have anymore. My only job is to believe them, show up and help them with, like you said, that big toolkit that we have in the best way possible. And when we run into roadblocks, either get help to help those clients or refer them on to where they need to be. And it sounds like even from the research you guys are finding that to be true. And so that's just so nice. And we often talk about it as a spectrum, right? So there's like the normal eaters who can overeat at times or use like the emotional outlet of tub of ice cream after a breakup or a stressful day at work. Like you said, the the chips and drink to watch TV after a stressful week at work, whatever, all the way to that severe end where they're weighing and measuring food and they're, you know, they're giving that food plan or they're committing their food each day to another human being, you know, whatever it might be. And then it falls somewhere in between. And so I think, yeah, from a harm reduction perspective, I think... I love what you guys are doing so much. And I and I am glad that we're actually kind of following the science. <laughs> we're following the science, even though, you know, it's kind of happening at the same time. So I know we've taken up an hour of your guys' time and we appreciate it so much. So we have two questions. I'm going to ask one and Clarissa has one more. What's next for your research team? And Tracy, you kind of alluded to it. There's many different outlets, but what is next for Trace?
3: Yeah, so, so I guess practically speaking, you know, like we really want to really execute this sort of trace program because it's really about, as we were sort of describing before, we've done it in a small scale. So we are looking for a number of people to participate in that program so that then we can kind of evaluate that and report it, you know, because like you said, like, it's one thing to be doing it but to have the the publications or the research or the science mm-hmm. that that's even it's quite meaningful so we really that's sort of like the next part for us just to sort of finish that off that's for, you know in the in the forefront and then as well as i guess doing those other angles you know whether it's the mri or the bloods you know in conjunction with all of that so that's sort of our um, our next steps in sort of the the research kind of area so yeah
0: yeah and and think I think, about you know, the, oh sorry girl oh, i'm just bit, interested no, yeah. in the blood part because we didn't really get to talk about it and i just want to hear a bit about because i'm excited yes yes i right
3: so you know like it's really like we were sort of saying before like the bloods you know like what happens to someone's profile you know when we use these different like approaches so whether it's um you know then I guess if you were thinking about this from any other kind of research or health condition perspective if you give someone some advice what changes does that make so does it make changes in their self-reported quality of life you know using those self-report tools does it change sort of at those more objective levels because that's where you know, things like when you were sort of talking about before, like what are the next steps? Where is this going? Is it going to get into the DSM? Like what is that? You know, but there's got to be evidence behind it to support that. So, you know, whether it is something that gets in there or it's not, it's about having the research to back that. So, you know, our research is really thinking about both those self-report because that's so meaningful in this space, you know, those consumer-led sort of approaches, but also those objective parts about the blood. So whether it's the cardiovascular markers, you know, health markers, because as we said, many of these individuals coming forward and not generalizing may be at increased weight status. So perhaps, you know, if we can increase their profiles, their long-term or long-term health profiles on a number of different levels, whether that's the hormones or blood markers, those types of things, we've got to assess those things along the way. So, you know, it depends on research funding because that's always the challenge, right? You know, <laughs> so, so I guess that's kind of next for the research team and, you know, finishing that trace program is really, really important for us.
0: Okay. We have a signature question for both of you and we kind of modified it to make it special to what you guys are doing. But if you could tell a younger version of yourself, something about food addiction, eating addiction, addictive eating, what would it be? Well, Mark, I'm happy to, happy to lead off on that. And
3: I think okay. the thing is that I think if someone is reporting some behaviors related to food, It's not really to kind of think and try and put them on a path, you know, like a mainstream approach. Perhaps there's something else there. So it's time to listen. You know, that would be my younger thing, you know, like just listen and unpack it a little bit. That would be, you know, listening because I guess we hear so many times people have tried to seek help and it's been not successful or not helpful. And (laughs) that hurts, you know what I mean? Like people going to seek help, that takes a lot of courage to go and do that. So I guess I'm, I'm sorry, I've got three things. So yeah, listen, You know, <laughs> if it's a thing, you know, like an unpack it a little bit, I guess for the individual, getting help is okay. You know what I mean? Like steps, putting yourself out of that comfort zone. And then the third thing is awareness. So if you do find yourself at that individual level, you know, thinking that something with food is not quite right, you know, being aware of it before it starts to really become, you know, so picking up on it early if you can, which is sometimes more difficult, but if you do feel you're eating for other reasons besides being hungry or for another particular reason, then it's okay to go and get help and or even just talk to someone else about it. So... Sorry,
2: Mark probably took yours because I had three. <laughs> That's fine, Tracy. Yeah, look, I mine are kind of similar as well. I guess firstly, I would tell younger, newly graduated Mark that food addiction and addictive eating is definitely a thing and real. And you know, listen, listen to people and listen to their story as well. And again, if I put my if I sort of put my clinical private practice dietitian hat on for a minute, it would also be that, you know, if someone's coming to me looking for weight loss advice and throughout that session, I'm hearing sort of some red flags and getting a sense that maybe something else is in play or or not quite right. And, you know, the way that they're talking about food is, you know, black and white or good and bad. Then, you know, I'd actually say, Mark, listen, spend a little bit more time and try and delve a little bit deeper into why that person views food that way, because it may very well be that that person is displaying signs of addictive eating or food addiction you know this negative relationship with food and it may be so early that we can actually pick it up and talk about that and you know, try and talk about management, the management process in place, or even just increase that awareness around it and save this person possibly years and years of heartache going down that road of fad dieting and dieting and then it doesn't work and then dieting again and it doesn't work and et cetera, et cetera. So I think that's that would sort of be my my big um, sit down chat to myself
0: early intervention, right? It's the thing that we wish we could figure out how to get those mild to, you know, slightly moderate individuals to reach out before it gets Than though, with the pain that we typically see when we show up and we're the last thing that they try to do because Mm -hmm. they've tried everything else, right? And so we so appreciate the work and the research that you guys are doing to get food addiction, addictive eating out there because the more papers that are published, the more the world will recognize that this is a thing. It's a real thing. So thank you so much for being here today. Yes, thank you. Thank you. uh,
2: Thank you very much, Claire. It's been a pleasure.
0: Thanks for joining us this week on Food Junkies, Recovery from Food Addiction. Make sure to join our Facebook group, Sugar Free for Life support group, I'm Sweet Enough. You can subscribe to our show in iTunes or Stitchers. That way you'll never miss an episode. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. Don't forget to pick up your copy of Dr. Tarman's book, Food Junkies, which is available on Amazon. If you have any additional questions, both Molly and Clarissa are food addiction professionals and work one-on-one with clients. You can find their websites and email addresses in the show notes. Be sure to tune in every Friday when our new episodes drop. As Vera loves to say, the power is ours.